Welcome to EdMed Talks. I'm Dr. Adam DeVico, an educator. And I'm Dr. Jacqueline DeVico, a pediatrician. And welcome to Season 2, Episode 10, our final episode of the season, where we talk about all things parenting. And in fact, this topic today, we are truly going to be talking about a lot of different things. Unlike some of our other episodes where we kind of hone in on a specific piece, we are calling today's episode The Panic List. Why is that, Jacqueline? So what do we mean by the panic list? There are things that parents commonly worry about much more than pediatricians or teachers do. That's right. And we thought that we would kind of go over some of these topics that we oftentimes as a doctor or a teacher have come across uh, usually over the period of time. So these are certainly not just anomaly type thing. These are things we've seen in trends and repetitive nature from parents over the years. So we promise you these are things if you have experienced one of these, you're not alone. And so we have 10 of these today. So it's kind of like a top 10 list, if you will. And we'll just kind of alternate. Of course, mine will be about education and Jacqueline's will be about medicine or being a doctor. Uh, but we want to talk about it from the parent perspective. Uh, so do you want to go first? Sure. All right, go for it. What's your first topic? Number one. All right, so number one is what my child's poop looks like. What a way to start. <laughs> so this is something that often, whether it's babies or older children, parents will often see something in their child's poop. Whether it is an odd color or an odd shape, they'll wonder, what did they swallow? What did they eat? 99% of the time, if your child is otherwise well, if they are eating and drinking well, they're not having high fevers, they're growing, if you see odd colors in their poop, maybe it's a dye that they had in some candy or cake icing a few days ago. Um, there are certain things. Bananas can sometimes, when digested, look like worms in the poop. Lots of things. Hot dog casing, sausages can look like worms in the poop. In the United States, true worms in your poop that are causing pathological disease are exceedingly rare. Um, poop can change colors. I'll get lots of pictures of poop. Um, if kids have a little bit of constipation, they may even have a little bit of blood in their poop and a little bit occasionally if we have a good explanation is okay so that is probably one of the first things that comes to my mind when it's something that I think of that parents worry about way more than pediatricians I have plenty of office visits where I'm telling parents I'm looking at poop pictures I'm testing poop I'm analyzing poop and telling them you know what everything's gonna be okay I know you all can't see us right now but I'm, I'm like crying laughing here I, I just didn't think this conversation would be this amusing I don't know if I can top those we might we might have topped this too early but we'll continue and by the way I just want to put a disclaimer out there we're not saying any of the things we talk about today are not worrisome uh, but we'd certainly want to say don't panic and many of these things teachers and doctors experience and work with every day and we will let you know if there's time to worry all right, so Adam, what's your number one in education? All right, so my first one, and these are not in any particular order for me, but the first one I'm going to say is grades in the early grades. So I'm specifically talking about kindergarten, first, second grade, uh, specifically, though I, I'll extend that maybe even to like third, fourth, and fifth grade too. But oftentimes we'll get concerns about a child who brings home a 
a bad grade. Now, I'll be honest, most schools out there don't even give grades in kindergarten, first, and second grade. Many of the schools I've been to across the country don't even start grading till third grade. So if you ever say my kid got a bad grade in kindergarten, first, or second grade, I'm wondering what's going on. But for the most part, these are not indicative of your child's ability. You got to remember, a five-year-old's attention span differs from minute to minute. So if they're doing some kind of assessment, they could easily be just zoned out thinking about something else and not paying attention to what's going on. And this, of course, extends into later grades as well. But do not put much clout into how your child's performing on an assessment in those early grades. You got to also remember, they've never done these before. Uh, I know a lot of schools since pandemic have moved towards electronic assessments, online assessments, and these are tricky programs to manipulate. And so kids are having to learn how to use the mouse or click a certain way in order to answer their questions. And so kids do all sorts of crazy things when they're taking these. And so some kind of low grade or low performance on there on specifically a low or a singular test. Don't worry about that. It's going to be okay. I personally, I'd rather look at trends over time. I'd rather look at growth patterns Uh, deviations from the norm over a period of time. That's more what a teacher is going to look at. And of course, they'll be in touch with you if there is a concern. All right, Jack, what's your next one? So number two, number two of my five items where parents often worry much more about it than pediatricians is going to be fever. So what is a fever? So once a child is over, we'll say three months old, so under three months, especially one month, we take fever very seriously in kids. So I'm cutting out that chunk of the pediatric population. But if your child is three months and older, especially six months and older, especially school age, if they have a fever, that's just indicative of their body fighting off some infection. Well, what if it's a 101? What if it's a 103? What if it's a 104 or 105? When, what number do I need to go to the emergency room is a common question I'll get asked. None. Please do not go to the emergency room solely because your child has a certain number read on a thermometer. That's just indicative they're fighting off virus, bacteria. Now, if they have prolonged fevers, that's a little bit different. If kids are having fevers for more than three days or more than five days in a row, and when I'm talking about a fever, I mean a 100.4 temperature that's registered or stays that high over an hour or a one-time 101. So these, quote, low-grade fevers, 99 or the low 100s, those can be just natural temperature fluctuations. There is no fever number that will induce your child to have a seizure if they don't have a seizure disorder. Now, yes, there are absolutely things called febrile seizures, which are seizures that happen during a fever, but it's not the number of the temperature. It's how high, it's, it's not how high. A febrile seizure, one, it just kind of happens. A child is more predisposed to them. There's nothing you can do as a parent, and it depends more on the rate of rise of the temperature up. A febrile seizure, whether or not your child is going to have a febrile seizure, depends, one, more on just their genetic or familial predisposition, and two, the rate of rise of their temperature. It's not based on a certain number, and good temperature control, so staying on top of them with Tylenol or Motrin, is not going to 
to prevent it. Now, absolutely, if your kid is feeling miserable, please treat their fever, Tylenol Motrin. If they're fast asleep, you can let them sleep. Um, does not worry me if they're fast asleep and that forehead thermometer says 105. Kids notoriously are going to get much higher fevers than adults. But fever alone, if your child is otherwise not severely sick, is not something that worries pediatricians nearly as much as parents. All right, on to my second one. Next one actually is going to be a familiar topic if you've been a listener of our podcast because we have spoken about this over certain topics and more specifically in our last episode when we talked to Rebecca Poe about IEPs. And so my topic is about special education and the evaluation process. If you receive a notification or a call or some communication from your child's school saying that, hey, we would like to meet with you concerning uh, an evaluation request for your child to see if there's any need for any type of specialized design or modified curriculum uh, down the road for some type of special education. A lot of, pe- a lot of parents uh, see this as a scary or uh, a bad thing. And I, I just want to say it's, it's not a bad thing. This is a way to help your child. Most parents that I've met over my career just want what's best for their kids. And whatever that takes, you know, they're usually willing to do it. And in some cases, uh, a specialized education is what is best for a child. And so if you do receive that letter that says, hey, we'd like to meet as a uh, referral team or to propose an evaluation, this is truly to be in the best interest of your child and to determine if some type of specialized education is what is needed uh, for their learning to be successful. All right, number three for me on the pediatrician list is going to be rashes, especially rashes kind of like with fever when your child is otherwise acting normal. So most rashes are nothing serious and nothing to worry about. Typically, they will go away with time. Um, A lot of viruses cause rashes. Viruses are probably one of the most common causes of rashes in kids. Um, Most of the time, what we do with rashes is if they're itchy, we do a steroid or an anti-itch cream or oral steroid or oral anti-itch, like an anti-histamine medication to help with the itching. Um, We wait and the rashes tend to go away with time. Um, Very rarely does a child have a rash that is indicative of a more serious illness. And under this context of rashes, I'm also going to talk about moles, birthmarks, A lot of parents, if they see them pop up or changes, they worry about skin cancer. That's one of the first things to pop into their head. And I will say, yes, can a child, does a child ever have skin cancer? Yes, there's very few rare genetic syndromes, but as a whole, almost every kid has moles, freckles, birthmarks, skin findings. Skin cancer is so exceedingly rare in the pediatric population that even the pediatric oncology doctor, so these are doctors who are specially trained literally to only take care of kids with cancer, almost never see it. And they usually have to consult with their adult colleagues. So definitely if you have a concern about a skin finding, bring it up with your physician, but please do not worry about it. Um, Also, a lot of times we can't exactly tell you, oh, this is the one thing that is going on, but we know I'm not worried about it and it will get better. All right, looking at number three for education. We live in a society where we have been, uh, become accustomed to comparing right? We, we are on social media. We compare our lives to whatever we see on Instagram or Facebook or whatever our friends are doing. And we have grown into a 
schooling society where we do the same with our own kids and you know we talk amongst our circles and our peers and we ask you know what is your kid doing can your kid read can your kid do that math and what i've seen in my career exceedingly more as the years have gone on are parents who are concerned about their child's readiness for kindergarten and this comes in the form of insisting that their child be uh, school ready in the form of knowing how to read, how to recognize sentences, and uh, sometimes it even turns into a bit of a contest of my child can read this and this, while not recognizing that those are not really the skills that kindergarten teachers are the most concerned about. And if you've ever talked uh, to a kindergarten teacher, and if you are a kindergarten teacher listening to this, I hope you nod your head, the things that they really want your kid to be able to do is go to the bathroom by themselves. Uh, at a minimum, learn how to open up the utensils or use utensils or open up uh, lunch items. That's very helpful. And then from a skill standpoint, you know, maybe recognizing their name, knowing their first and last name, uh, maybe recognizing the letters in their name. But reading uh, Shakespeare and Hemingway before kindergarten is certainly not an expectation. And so please do not put that unnecessary pressure on your child, your kindergarten teacher is going to be very helpful in the process of learning to read and recognizing letters and numbers and that whole curriculum. So uh, think more of the executive functioning skills as if you're going to put any focus on kindergarten readiness skills, focus on those things. Again, like toileting, uh, learning how to put on a jacket by themselves, a book bag by themselves, opening up their lunch items. Those are the things truly your kindergarten teacher will be tremendously appreciative of. So number four on my pediatrician list is cough in kids. So first of all, I'd like to discuss why we cough. So we cough to expel germs from our body and we cough to open up our lungs. We cough to prevent ourselves from choking. So our cough reflex is actually really, really important. Um, children who are born with severe neurological impairment, who have very weak or poor cough reflexes, they often get pneumonias and are often incredibly sickly, as are the elderly. The younger you are, the more sensitive your cough reflex is. So kids cough all the time. Kids cough with the tiniest little bit of snot dripping down their throat. Kids, when they're fighting off a virus, make tons and tons of mucus, tons more mucus for a common cold than a proportional adult would make. So the child is smaller, they make lots more mucus compared to their body size, and their body's going to cough even at less mucus dripping down the back of their throat, triggering that cough reflex. What does this lead to? This leads to kids coughing all the time. They can seem to never get better from a cold. They can have a cold and that cough just, quote, will never go away. So if a child is breathing well, if they are a happy cougher, if they are eating well, drinking well, having normal energy, they're sleeping okay at night, cough is not something that I typically worry about. The cough and gag reflex are also very, very close together. And so it is common for a child to cough, 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 and then vomit. 
That often is worrisome to parents, but I promise as a pediatrician, that is a normal thing. I know as adults, it is exceedingly rare for us to cough so much we vomit. It happens a lot in kids. Um, truthfully, the louder a child coughs, that like wet, rattly sound in the chest, that's mucus. And the louder they are at coughing, that just means the better they are at clearing that mucus out of the way. Kids also, typically until they get to older elementary school or above, don't really have the ability to cough up mucus and spit it out of their mouths. They often just cough it up a little bit and swallow it. Now, I know the thought of it often to parents and adults, quote, sounds disgusting, but the truth is, literally, if you are alive, snot is dripping down the back of your throat into your stomach as we speak. And so as gross as it sounds, it's not dangerous at all. Um, and so my kind of spiel to parents is, especially as we head into these winter months, if your child is a happy cougher, there's not much we can do about it. Cough medicines also, they don't work very well. I mean, honey has been shown to maybe work slightly better than placebo, but pretty much every cough syrup that you can buy over the counter, when you study it, especially in kids, it really doesn't reduce cough. And so just ignoring it, giving your kid, make sure they're hydrated, make sure they're otherwise acting well, yes, it will eventually go away, but recognize that it takes much more time in the pediatric population than in the adult population. Man, Jacqueline gets all the fun topics. She gets <laughs> poop, mucus, vomit. I mean, man. That's all part of pe being a pediatrician. Um, I Barely a week goes by when I have not had one of those bodily fluids put on my from another child or a patient of mine put on my body. Ugh. That's just part of, that's part of being a pediatrician well, and honestly part of being a parent. Yes, and, and teachers are, no, are not immune to that either, but... Yeah, I'm glad you have those topics to talk about. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to move on to a less disgusting one, I guess, depending on who you ask. But uh, my next one is standardized testing. So if you have a school-aged school child, I guess more specifically, eh, usually around third grade or above, they probably are going to be taking some form of standardized test uh, at least once a year, if not more, depending on where you live. Now, I am not, quote, I am not saying that these tests don't matter. What I don't want you to do though as a parent is panic about them or rest your, uh, your child's success in life on this one test. Look, I mean, there are, Jacqueline and I are not immune. We both got into our careers by having to pass very high stakes testing. So high stakes testing is in a lot of facets of our life, including as adults. But for a young child, I, I cannot stand by watching a parent put the pressure on their child. You must do well. Uh, it's just, it's demoralizing. And even worse so when the child doesn't do that well and a parent kind of browbeats them after that. So do not panic when you hear about your child having to take a standardized test, nor if they do not do that well on it, please do not panic. It is a singular slice, very thin slice at that, of their uh, academic career, of their school year, and even of their day. Most of these tests are only a couple of hours, and so it is a small, small sliver. And I cannot tell you the number of times where I've just seen students just break down because they, uh, they see how they did, and their biggest worry is that their parents are going to be so disappointed in them. And so please, if, you're, if your child is going to be taking a standardized test, please encourage them. Please tell them. Try your best. 
And you don't have to tell them don't worry about it because they should worry about it. You want them to do their best, but try your best is a great way to approach that. All right, so we are up to topic number five on my pediatrician list of things that parents worry about at a much higher level than their doctor does. Uh, My number five is something that gets under my skin, and what it is is the worry and the panic over pink eye. So what is pink eye? Pink eye, or otherwise known as conjunctivitis, is when the eyes, whether it is the sclera, the whites of the eyes, or the um, palpebral fissure, so basically when you pull your eyes down and look where it becomes kind of red underneath, you can have watery eyes, you can have goopy eyes. Pink eye is something that whether it's parents, whether it's schools or daycares, seem to very, very, very much worry about. So pink eye itself has kind of three main causes. There's allergic conjunctivitis or allergic pink eye, where allergies irritate your eyes, cause them to become itchy, you rub them and they're red, and that is a cause of pink eye or conjunctivitis. Bacterial conjunctivitis is the pink eye that we often think of, and a lot of parents have the misconception that all pink eye, all red eyes must be bacterial and we must use antibiotic eye drops to fix them. Um, But the third and the most common cause of pink eye or conjunctivitis is viral, meaning your kids are exposed to, you know, hundreds of viruses a day. One of them gets into their eyes. It is a mild cold or a mild bacterial infection in the eye. So when your child has pink eye, think of it as no more serious than a cold. I would even say less serious than a cold. How many kids are hospitalized each year with pink eye? None. How many kids die of pink eye? None. It is not even as contagious as a typical cold. Really depends on exactly which virus is causing the pink eye, so that's hard to give an absolute to that. Um, The bacterial causes, yes, we have some antibiotic eye drops that sometimes will help, but truthfully, all will get better with time. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has a very strong statement saying that They do not recommend children removed from school or daycare settings solely for pink eye if the child does not have any other cause. I often have parents of kids who come in with clearly allergic or clearly viral pink eye saying, oh, but my child needs to be on drops to get back to daycare. And as a parent, I completely understand as a As a working parent, it's really hard when daycare won't keep your child for something that does not make them very sick. But at the same time, I hate giving kids unnecessary medicines they don't need. Pink eye, for the most part, again, 99 plus percent of the time, is not going to have your child go blind and not going to cause anything other than just mild eye irritation. And so pink eye is, and a lot of my patients know I have kind of a soapbox of this whenever I diagnose their child with pink eye, but it is not a reason they should be kicked out of daycares or schools. Yeah, that's Jacqueline's soapbox, all right? I've heard it many a time. <laughs> and we've differed on it as well because, you know, as like a, as a principal and stuff, I don't know. Maybe school, I think schools are just still trained and teachers are still trained in their mind. Like certain things you just make sure kids go home on. Pink eye being one, lice being one. Like there's just certain things Which- that trigger educators to say go i'm going to add number six is lice because the american academy of pediatrics (laughs) also says lice should not send a child home common colds are more dangerous for kids and more contagious than pink eye and lice which people send home for i still stand by my case that 
education is still triggered by these things and we still are going to be sending kids home. But you heard it from the doctor first. You do not need to panic if your child has pink eye or Jackal made up her sixth uh, category lice. All right. I get to do my final one now. So in the search for uh, schools, sometimes parents like to shop around. Sometimes they like to consider different options. And in that option searching, shopping adventure of schooling, oftentimes parents will look at either school grades. Sometimes you can look at ratings online. You can look at reviews online. And I often hear the term from parents in describing the school that, it, that they either send their kids to or want to send their kids to, that's a good school or that's eh, a bad school. And I often push back on that ideology because the, the concept of a good school or a bad school is, first of all, very subjective. What's good to one may not be good to another. What's bad to one may not be bad to another. And so I encourage parents not to panic if your child is about to attend a school or attends a school that perhaps does not have a great grade or uh, rating based on you know subjective reviews. What is most important is that your child feel, feels comfortable, safe, and uh, enjoys the experience of going to that school. I can promise you I have been to, worked at, and led schools that were what many would consider, you know, bad schools uh, just by looking at maybe a grade. And those are some of the hardest working, most effective teachers that I've ever come across and some of the best families that I have ever met. And so the panic sets in oftentimes when uh, parents are in circles talking to each other and, you know, especially as kids approach that kindergarten age and they ask each other, oh, what, what school? What school is your kid going to? Where are they going to go next year? And the, the panic sets in with, well, I, I have to do what my friends are doing. Or I have to do what the, uh, the perception is uh, best. And so sometimes that turns into a, a conversation about that quote-unquote good school. So be cautious of that. Be careful about how you perceive, evaluate, and look at schools. Do what is best for your child and what is the environment that they will be most successful in, whatever that is. So those are our top 10, actually top 11. Jacqueline gave us a bonus one there. Those are our top 11 things that we want you as parents, as uh, guardians, to not worry as much about. Again, disclaimer, we're not saying these are not things to pay attention to and not to consider and think about, but we don't want you to panic. Jacqueline and I have a lot of experience, a lot of years of addressing these types of situations and making sure that parents know that doctors, educators are well-versed in handling these things. So we just want to thank you again for joining us on season two. This is our final episode. We can't wait to join you for our next season, and we appreciate all of you who have been listening uh, week after week for our first two seasons. We truly, truly appreciate it. Uh, if you feel so inclined, please share it out. Tell your friends about it. We want to spread this as far as we can. And for the final time in season two, Jacqueline. You know your child best. There's no such thing as the perfect parent. However, you can be the perfect parent for your child. 